And now, Father, as we come to your word, we once again come as beggars, needing to be fed, needing to be spiritually nourished, needing Christ, needing Christ to be everything that we, um, that we feed on during this time. And so we pray, Lord, that as we study your word, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, change us, conform us to the image of Christ. Teach us from this passage, Lord. Show us our need for Christ. Show us his absolute sufficiency. Show us our desperate need that we may more fully submit our lives to him. May he be glorified during this time. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We'll be continuing our study in John chapter 6 today. Uh, We are only going to be looking at two verses, but you would not believe how much I actually left out uh, from what I plan on talking about today. These are deep and rich Verses. These are, are very important verses. In fact, these are a, this is a pivotal moment in this chapter, so we want to make sure that we uh, get a good, solid grasp of exactly what is taking place in this passage. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. And you know, as I, as I study this passage, as I study these, these two verses, what I kept coming back to was the fact that this is just such an important passage for us to put to memory. And it's short enough that we we really don't have an excuse to not do that. This is such a good verse to put to memory. You know, there are certain verses that are just widely loved and recognized by Christians, um, in part because they're very easy to memorize and yet contain volumes of truth. In other words, there'll be uh, be a lot of truth summarized just very succinctly. Think about John 3.16, for example. I mean, many people have that verse memorized, and if they don't have it memorized word for word, well, they're, they're generally pretty close. Uh, if they're not confident in how close they are, uh, they might, they, they at least have the address, right, as, as uh, some people might call it. So they, they remember the address so they know where to find it um, when they need it. Romans 8.28 is another one. It's much the same way. That's such a good verse to memorize. I, I actually don't know if there's a better verse to memorize than that one uh, for times of, of hardship and trials. Uh, it was when Christina was so sick in the hospital, um, you know, almost almost three years ago now, that I memorized that one. And uh, I don't know, actually, looking back now, I don't know how I would have made it through that time without that verse. Because that one verse reminds us that in the midst of our deepest troubles and darkest nights, God is with us. And not only is God with us, but he's for us, and he's using every circumstance that we encounter for our good. Philippians 4.13, that's another one uh, that people have memorized. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, 
whether people memorize that and use it properly in the context it's intended is an entirely different question. But today we're going to continue in our study of the sixth chapter of the gospel according to John, and we come to a place in the text where there is one brief sentence that is like all these other verses that I've just mentioned. It is short, and yet it is just absolutely loaded. It is overflowing with so many important doctrinal truths. So why would we not memorize it? It summarizes so much, so succinctly. And you'll see exactly what I mean in just a few minutes uh, when we take a look at it. But one of the things that any serious student of the Bible must take to heart, must learn to do, is, is to understand that no verse or no passage even of the Bible stands on its own. Uh, There's an entire context to consider. And just like scientists in the lab who are discovering things, uh, looking at things under the microscope, looking at things with the naked eye, or astronomers who, who look up at the sky and then figure out which star they want to look at, so they zoom in on that one star. We must do the same thing with the biblical text, sometimes putting just a single word or maybe just two words under the microscope and then zooming out and, and looking at the whole thing together, the whole passage together. Sometimes we even need to do that with an entire chapter as a whole before zooming back in. And this is the case with John chapter 6. This chapter uh, doesn't just stand alone. It stands uh, after John chapter 5. In fact, with John chapter 6, we would do well to consider how it connects to the chapter that preceded it to see what it has in common and what some of the differences are, compare and contrast, with chapter 5. Because there's indeed a, a very strong connection between these two chapters. So just in in review, think back to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, you'll remember, opened with Jesus healing this crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. And you'll recall that Jesus chose this one man out of all the multitudes of crippled people uh, at the pool of Bethesda, and how even after Jesus healed the man, none of the other cripples who were at the pool who witnessed this miracle cried out to Jesus to make them whole as well. This miracle would serve as kind of the catalyst, the cause for what ensued. Uh, And of course, what ensued was a controversy. The religious leaders did not like the fact that Jesus had done this on the Sabbath. And so they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus proceeds by defending his actions, explaining in verse 21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. So then Christ would present himself to them as fully God, God in the flesh, fully equal to the Father, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwelled. Jesus thus had every right to sovereignly choose to heal this one crippled man. The man himself, in this instance, was entirely passive. He was helpless. His only hope was that Jesus sought him and called him from death to life. So why was he healed? Out of all the multitudes, why was he healed? Because, and let me underscore this for you, Because Jesus sought him. Now, consider what we've seen 
in John chapter 6, as Jesus is followed by a massive crowd, a massive number of people who are uh, coming to Jerusalem for uh, the Passover and who followed Jesus because of the signs he was performing. They witnessed the miraculous feeding of roughly 20,000 people, give or take. And thus, they followed and they desired him, and yet what we saw is that they followed and desired him wrongly. They desired him, they followed him, in order that he should submit to them, realizing that he was capable of giving them free food, of of meeting their physical needs. So they desired that he should submit to them, rather than realizing that they themselves should be the ones submitting to him. And so how did Jesus respond to that? Jesus responded to this by withdrawing from the people, only for them to find him again the next day where we saw that they desired him and they followed him because they were, once again, physically hungry. Not because they realized that they were spiritually hungry. They had missed the entire lesson of the feeding of the 5,000 or the 5,000 families. And so we see some startling contrasts between chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 5, Jesus sought out and approached a man who was spiritually dead, and he's granted life. He was lost, but he's found. In chapter 6, it's the spiritually dead who seek after Jesus, and yet they remain completely lost, spiritually dead, because they're seeking him for selfish reasons. In chapter 5, Jesus instantly heals and makes whole the crippled man. But in chapter 6, Jesus feeds the people, and yet nobody is made whole. Nobody is converted. See, both of these chapters begin with a miracle. And yet they produce different results, right? Friends, what we must see is that the results reveal a picture of the human condition. Just as none of the other crippled people at the Pool of Bethesda sought out or called to Jesus, none of these people who are seeking or following after Jesus are seeking or calling out to him truly either. Out of all these people, those who were at the Pool of Bethesda and those who witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 families, I mean, we're talking about 20,000 plus people, how many people out of both of these instances were saved? the man whom Jesus healed, the man whom Jesus sought. See, both of these groups are representations of humanity. They are pictures of humanity as a whole. How many people would it take to say, okay, this is a fair uh, picture of humanity? Now, we'd say, okay, if there are 10 or 15 people, no, that doesn't represent all of humanity. Uh, What about 100 or 200? Well, you could still say... Maybe that's getting closer, but not quite. What about 20,000 plus people? I mean, you can't ask for more. 20,000 people is, is certainly more than enough to say, yeah, that's, that's a representation of all of humanity. Their response to what Jesus does, their response to his miracles is not to love him, not to worship him, not to seek him, not to put saving faith in him. Their response 
is to use him, to desire to use him for their own personal needs. Their response is to desire to use him for a free meal that will not leave them satisfied. And how does Jesus respond to them? He pointed out to them that they are working, laboring for food that perishes. The food that they wanted would make them feel full or or satisfied, but not for long. It would only last a, a short while, just like all the other things of this world that offer a temporary pleasure. But just like those things, their hunger would return before long. And so Jesus told them instead to work for the food which endures to eternal life. That is, they needed to stop prioritizing what is temporary and perishing, things that will be lost eventually. Stop making those things that will be lost your first priority and instead make what is eternal and cannot be lost your top priority. That was essentially what he was telling them. So today we're going to consider the response of the people to that instruction. And the point of this short passage will be simply that we are reconciled to God through faith and not by works of the flesh. So the people whose minds are set entirely on the physical, their their minds are set on, on what they can see, what they can taste, what they can feel and could not grasp, their minds could not grasp the spiritual reality that Jesus had been setting before them. The people are going to respond to this instructive kind of rebuke that Jesus has given them by asking a very revealing question. Look at verse 28 with me. Verse 28 says this, Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? It's a very revealing question. And Jesus responds by giving them a very revealing answer, giving us a summarization of the gospel that is so succinct, I would count it to be one of the best verses that we could possibly put to memory. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So as the people ask what work they should do, it seems like they probably have their minds set on the law of Moses. They probably are thinking the Mosaic law, which is a covenant of works. In other words, it's a covenant that's based on what the individual uh, is capable of upholding, of doing. It's a covenant of works. But Jesus had been speaking to them, presenting what he had to offer, not as something to be worked for and earned, but as a gift to be received, a covenant of grace, as opposed to a covenant of works. See, those two things are completely at odds with each other. If you think that you're going to work for and earn your salvation, that's a covenant of works. If you're going to trust in a gift that is freely given, that is what you would call a covenant of grace. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He didn't say, which you will earn and I will reward you with. He said that it's a food, proverbially speaking, of course, that is freely given. It's a gift. It's not a reward. 
But the mind of natural man, the natural mind of man, the, fo- the mind of a fallen individual, cannot fathom the simplicity of such a thing. And if you don't believe me, look at every single world religion. Look at what they do. Look at what they believe. Look at what they have to do in their system in order to receive salvation. Uh, apart from Christianity, this is how every religion in the world works. If you do this, if you do that, then God will reward you, or then God will accept you. That's not a covenant of grace. That's a covenant of works. That's how every religion in the world works. Salvation isn't a gift to be received, according to these other religions. It's a prize to be earned. Anything different from that makes no sense to natural man, which is why every religion in the world outside of Christianity works exactly that way. And this is exactly what Scripture tells us about natural man's fallen mind, his reaction to and his attitude toward the gospel. Paul reminds us that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Who's perishing by nature? Everybody. He goes on to say, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. See, in the mind of the first century Jew, there were only two kinds of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. So what Paul's saying is that the gospel is rejected. It is foolishness according to everyone for one reason or another. To Jews, a stumbling block. To Gentiles, foolishness. It's rejected by everybody, by nature, for one reason or another. And of course, that leads us to what he says in chapter 2, where he explains why this is so. He writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so we, we have to see, as we consider our text here in John, that these multitudes being addressed by Jesus aren't exactly understanding what Jesus was saying about uh, food which endures to eternal life. I, I think they've, got, they've kind of got a clue, but they're not quite sure, so they're seeking clarification. They ask a question that we actually see people asking uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, the Jews who hear Peter preaching at Pentecost. Uh, they're smitten in their hearts. They're just heartbroken to realize how badly they have sinned against God. And their response is, brethren, what shall we do? The Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, he asks, what must I do to be saved? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? All of these indicate that man's mind is on what I must do. Covenant of works, not covenant of grace. Uh, Remember, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman at the well that she doesn't know the gift of God. And so it is with man by nature in his fallen state, friends. He does not know, he does not understand the gift of God. 
He can't understand it. Indeed, he cannot even begin to wrap his mind around it or to fathom it. He thinks that if he's going to be reconciled to God, he must earn it. He must work. He must do something so that it's deserved, it's earned. And so the prodigal son comes back to the father and he begs his father, make me as one of your hired men. Covenant of grace or covenant of works? Covenant of works. He's begging his father to let him earn his father's grace. In every single one of these cases, the individuals are entirely inclined to think that salvation requires that man work, that man do this or man do that. And man in his fallen natural condition does not and would not want it any other way. As James Montgomery Boyce notes, how pleased we should be if we could only earn salvation. In that case, we would have succeeded in bringing God into the humbling position of being in debt to us, and we would love it, end quote. See, friends, the fallen mind of fallen man thinks exactly like this. The fallen man is too proud to present himself before God as a beggar, as an unworthy, undeserving sinner whose only hope is that by sheer unwarranted grace, he would receive everything for nothing. It's not how the human mind works. And thus, when these multitudes ask Jesus, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God, we have to understand that they are probably gaining just the slightest awareness of their fallen, lost condition. They're aware of the fact that Jesus knows and is teaching something that they aren't quite familiar with. They're starting to see that they had no understanding of the road of salvation that Jesus was teaching them about and directing them to. They're like moths that are circling around a flame but not wanting to get too close. They can't understand the way that Jesus is teaching. So what is that way? What is the way that Jesus is teaching? How can a person be reconciled to God? How can a person be saved? Jesus summarizes the gospel beautifully here, responding to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believe. Believe, just believe, and you'll receive salvation. It's, it's so simple. Who would pass on such an offer? Who would pass on such a, a simple thing? It's, it's so simple, and, and yet it's not. Because before we consider how to answer that question, who would pass on such an offer, let us remember that each and every one of uh, the members of the human race by nature is an enemy of God. Paul says this, he, talking about by nature, Paul says this, he says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That is God's assessment of the entire human race, friends, by nature. And there are no exceptions. 
not even one. So here are the questions that we have to ask. First of all, would it be good for a person to do what is necessary to receive salvation, to to believe in Jesus? Would that be a good thing? Of course it would be. Of course it would be. And yet, Scripture tells us very explicitly that no one, no human being, does good by nature. And that brings us to our second question, and that is this. If turning to Christ in faith is good and is necessary for salvation, and nobody does good, how can we possibly explain how anyone does rightly respond to the offer of salvation by putting faith in Christ? See, friends, the gospel is a covenant of grace. It's not about us. It's not about what we must do. It is entirely about God. It's about his glory. It's about the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 1. It's not about us. It's not about what we must do. It's about God and what he has done to reconcile sinners, us, to himself. All that is required is that we believe it, and believe it truly, and believe it savingly. So Jesus' answer to this question pulls back the blinds. It pulls up the shutters to reveal the majestic beauty of God's grace, freely given unto sinners who are adopted into his family through no doing, through no merit of their own. And from the perspective of people who have been saved, you know, we might say, well, that's not complicated at all. It's it's easy to believe in Jesus, and so, so it's easy to receive salvation. And even if that truly were the case... Uh, It is, as Henry Ironside noted, quote, evidence of divine work in the soul, end quote. Man does not and will not believe by nature. When I say that we are, you've heard me say it a million times. I, I, for a few years there, I tried to put it in every single sermon multiple times. When you hear me say that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone, you've you got to understand that there's a certain order that those things come in. There's a very specific order to those things. We are saved first by grace alone, but the question is, how do we receive that grace? Through faith. But this is not man's doing. Man, in his fallen nature, cannot receive this grace, and he will not. He, he refuses it by nature. And this is why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says it is the gift of God. The question is, what does it refer to? What is Paul saying is the gift of God? Grace or faith? The answer, linguistically, is both. It's both. Grace and faith are gifts. See, if it's good to have saving faith in Christ, and it 
Absolutely, most certainly is good to have faith in Christ. And if man by nature does not do good, then faith cannot be of ourselves. It must come from something. It must come from someone outside of ourselves. And Scripture tells us who that someone is. It's God. And because both grace and faith are gifts from God, Paul reminds us, no one may boast. As Paul reminds the the Thessalonians, not all have faith. Paul said, turn to Romans chapter 12. Well, you have a second, because this, this verse will summarize this doctrine so succinctly and make it so obvious for us. Romans chapter 12, he, he's just gotten done with the three chapters that deal with, uh, with the election. Chapters, uh, the end of chapter 8 through uh, chapter 11, it's dealing with, with the doctrine of election. Then we get to Romans chapter 12. And Romans chapter 12, the whole chapter is really devoted to the practical outworking of salvation. In other words, what happens when you have been saved. And so with that understood, Paul is talking to people who have been saved. And so he says this in verse 3. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. According to that verse, where does faith come from? Who allots faith? God. God, and only God. It is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift that is given by grace alone, apart from any merit within us or indebtedness that God has toward us. It's given by grace alone, through faith alone, believing in the one whom God has sent, the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from works. Now, until you've come to terms with that, until you've submitted yourselves entirely to that proposition, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and you have truly believed that, it is impossible before Having an understanding of that and believing that, it's impossible for a person to please God through works. And that's because without faith, it is impossible to please God, as the author of Hebrews reminds us. And that's why the Holy Spirit would be quick to add, uh, back to our passage in Ephesians, uh, verses two, or chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he follows that up in verse 10 by writing, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created for good works, not by good works. We're created for them. They follow after exercising, and, uh, after exercising faith and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so they are the fruit of salvation. They are not the root of salvation. They're not the basis of our, of our salvation. They are the outcome, the practical outworking of our salvation. But the weight of our passage, back to John now, the weight of this passage is that we are reconciled to God through faith alone and not by works of the flesh. 
This is what God requires for a sinner to be reconciled to him. And there is no other way. You must believe in the one whom he has sent. God will accept nothing less. He will accept nothing else. This is what God requires. And yet, who can provide what God requires? Only God. Only God can provide what God requires. If God requires something outside of himself, that's a denial of what we would call his aseity. That is his, his self-sufficiency. The question then becomes, what does it mean to have faith in Christ? What does it mean to believe savingly in Christ? That was a question that the reformers in the Protestant Reformation wrestled with. They came up with three criteria, three things. First of all, it means that Christ is the object of our faith. I mean, people put all kinds of, their their faith in all kinds of things, right? Some people put their their faith in in idols, in in a statue. Uh, Some people put their faith in the fact that they go to church. Some people put their trust in, you know, the fact that they've been, uh, they've been baptized, uh, they, they put their trust in the fact that they've regularly partaken of the Lord's Supper. I mean, the list could go on and on. But biblical faith, saving faith, has Christ as the object. Not ourselves, not our parents, not our works, nothing else but Christ. Christ alone is the object of biblical saving faith. The second element of saving faith is having the conviction that the content of our faith, that the object of our faith is true. And this is where we have to be reminded that it's possible for somebody to, to know intellectually, to know what, Christian, what Christianity is. They might know what the Bible teaches. They might know this doctrine and that doctrine, and yet they don't believe it's true. In the same sense that, you know, I can tell you some of the, some of the things that, um, you know, that Muslims believe based on the Quran. Uh, I don't believe those things to be true, but I know what they say, right? Uh, And so sadly, this is the case for many, many who grow up in the church and eventually fall away. They've got some knowledge, but that's it. It, it, They just know what Christianity teaches. This past year, many of you guys probably saw it, there was a well-known Christian author who announced that he was renouncing the faith, that he was abandoning the faith, and that he didn't think that he had actually ever truly believed it. And this kind of thing actually happens far more often than we should be comfortable thinking about. It's a very uncomfortable thing to think about. But this is ultimately the condition that a person has when when they have all this intellectual Understanding all this intellectual knowledge of Christianity and the Bible and doctrine. Maybe they even have a, a firm grasp of, of church history, but that's all it is. It's just all up here. It's all head knowledge. It's just intellectual understanding. It's not a truth that the person actually thinks is true. They're just propositions that they say, okay, this is what Christianity believes. So it's all up here, and it doesn't penetrate the heart. Now, in order for it to penetrate the heart, it does have to go through the mind. But for the person who just has intellectual knowledge and it doesn't penetrate the heart, that's not saving faith. 
So the first element of saving faith is having the correct object of our faith. The second element is having a conviction that the object of our faith really is true. And third, this brings us to the element where the rubber really hits the road, so to speak. Uh, The third element is personal trust. Personal trust. You know who believes that the Bible is true? You know who believes and knows everything uh, that the Bible says is true? For example, that Christ is the only Savior? Satan does. Satan knows that. All of the demons in hell know that. But this is where we are reminded that all the knowledge in the world about Christianity cannot save us. We must actually believe it and trust it. Think of it this way. When you came into church today, you had to come up the stairs, right? And with each step, that plank of wood underneath your feet was, in one sense, the object of your faith. I mean, when you're walking up the the stairs and you've got a different stair in mind than the one you step on, what happens? Uh, you fall, right? Uh, or, or something happens. Maybe you, uh, maybe you think there are more stairs than there are, and so when you get to the top, you just kind of, whoops, thought, thought there was one more stair. Okay, so that, that's, that's the object of your faith. If you have a different object, object in mind, a different plank in mind, it's a disaster. But not only did you have the right object in mind with each step, but you also believed, you also had the conviction that that plank, that that step would bear and support your personal weight. You believed that it would not snap. You believed that, that it would, it would uh, prevent you from falling through it. Uh, if you didn't believe that, you would not have stepped on it. And, and so that led you to what? Stepping on it. You, you actually stepped on it. You actually trusted it to bear your weight and to support you. What good would, uh, would believing the stairs would support you do if you then refused to trust to act on that conviction. And so it is with Christ, friends. Christ alone must be the object of our faith. That is where saving faith starts. We must hold the conviction that he truly will save all who believe in him. And we must really trust that he will save us just as he has promised. See, God requires that a person uphold all the standards set forth in his word. That's what is necessary for salvation. That's what God requires. But that's bad news for sinners like us because every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has fallen short. We haven't upheld all that God requires. Every one of us was born a rebel by nature. And if that was the end of the story, that would be the end of our hope. The good news is it's not the end of the story. Do we have the the moral perfection and the obedience that God requires? No. Not on our own, we don't. But God provides what God requires in Christ Jesus. This is why believing in him is necessary, because Jesus perfectly upheld everything that God requires. He perfectly upheld the demands of the law. And so for those who believe in him, 
his perfect righteousness, his moral perfection, his upholding of the law is credited to all who will believe in him. Works the same way with credit cards. You make a charge, you, you owe money. You, you make a deposit, that money is, is there. It's credited to your account. And with this, your sin is credited to Jesus and his moral perfection is credited to you. For the person who will believe in Jesus, therefore, they stand in God's own righteousness before God. God requires that we believe this. God requires that we take this to heart and that we trust in Christ alone for what he has done. The question that we must grapple with then, friends, is what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? Do you see what God requires? Do you see that you can do nothing to earn or to deserve salvation? That there is no work that you can do which can please God? That there is nothing that you can do except believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe his promise that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you believe that this is what he requires? And will you act upon what he requires? Friends, is Christ the only rock upon which you stand? Is his perfect work, his, his active obedience, the only hope that you have before God? Or are you still trusting in yourself just a little bit? Just in case it's not true. Just in case God doesn't live up to this promise, doesn't fulfill this promise, are you trusting yourself even just a little bit? Friends, today I, I encourage you to renounce even the smallest amount of self-confidence you might have in yourself because what happens is if you don't, it will grow. It will grow. It might be small now, two years from now, maybe two days from now. It will grow. Friends, salvation isn't a reward to be earned. It's a gift to be freely received. And I'm convinced that people will never, ever abandon their own efforts, their own attempts to justify themselves until they really do understand that every human effort is entirely insufficient in God's eyes. But today, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you to do the same thing that Jesus was instructing these people to do. And that is to see and to understand your own personal insufficiency and simultaneously to see Christ's absolute and ultimate sufficiency. This is what God requires. That we see our best attempts at righteousness as being just filthy rags before him. And thus we renounce and we have no confidence in our works, our righteousness, our moral goodness. And instead we trust entirely in what Christ has done for all who will believe in him. Friends, we are reconciled to God through faith alone, not by the works of the flesh it's not faith and works. It's not faith in a little bit of works even. It's faith alone. 
This is the one and only means of receiving salvation that God has sovereignly ordained. As the hymn goes, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. That is nonsense to the natural man. He will not accept it. This is what God requires. That song is a beautiful, beautiful summary of the gospel. But it's such an assault on the pride of a man, a natural man. That's why the natural man will not do it. He cannot, he will not do what is right. He refuses to trust entirely in the works of another. He will not do what is good. He will not do what is righteous. By nature, he refuses. And thus we see the glory of the gospel We see that the heart of stone, which refuses God's free offer of salvation, must be replaced by grace with the heart of flesh. And we see, and we can't help but conclude, that it is indeed the work of God that we would renounce our very best efforts and cling not to anything that we've done, but cling entirely and solely to Jesus Christ, to Him alone. Because we seek Him rightly and believe as God requires, the beautiful truth that we're drawn to is that we know, friends, we know that we have experienced the work of God in our lives if we have savingly believed. I urge you to do that today. I urge you to do that, to believe, to do what God requires so that you too may see the work of God in your lives. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious, beautiful gospel that there is nothing that we can do to erase what we have done. We've all sinned against you. We're sinners by nature and by choice. We were born in slavery, in bondage to sin. And we could not free ourselves. But Jesus could. And so we thank you for this beautiful truth that you showed mercy to us by sending Jesus to uphold all of your commands in the place as the substitute for all who would believe in him. Father, we, we recognize that salvation is of the Lord. As your word clearly says, We recognize that on our own, we do not seek you. We do not do anything righteous. We don't do anything good. But Christ, Christ did. Christ upheld your law. 
his act of obedience. He, he never strayed from it. He never, never for one nanosecond walked apart from your will. And so, Lord, our only plea before you is the shed, the shed blood of Christ for us. We have nothing to bring. We have nothing to offer. All that we can do is say, Christ did what I was supposed to. He lived the perfect life that I failed to live. And he lived the death, or he, he died the death that I was supposed to die in my place. Father, help us to believe that. Help us to live by that. To believe it savingly. That it wouldn't just be intellectual knowledge, but that it would be knowledge that sinks into our hearts and changes our lives. And that, not an end of itself, but in order that Christ would be glorified in our lives. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gifts of grace and faith in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.